0: Welcome to episode number 54 in this two-part episode of the Bike Talk with Dave podcast. I'm your host, Dave Mabel, and I am thankful for all of you who tune in. This week, I've put together a double episode. Episode 53, which you might have just listened to, is a recent conversation with bikepacking fat biker who crafts his purpose-built bikes at the University of Iowa Bike Lab. Twelve years ago, he started the bike building curriculum that we'll hear about in detail, in this episode. I met our guest Steve McGuire in 2019 as he was riding the Iditarod Trail with his friend Jud Roller. I was intrigued with this program and wanted to include it in my film, A Thousand Miles to Nome. So after we got home from Alaska, I made the trip to Iowa City to hear about the program. And that is the conversation you'll hear today. Now, before we get to today's episode, I need to thank Bike Rags Apparel, for sponsoring Bike Talk with Dave. Bike Rags is a U.S. apparel company supplying teams, clubs, and events with promotional materials like cycling jerseys, koozies, shorts, t-shirts, hats, whatever you need. In fact, they are doing our hats. They have low minimums on orders and great prices. They do exceptional work whether you need screen printing, embroidery, or sublimation. Be sure and contact Morgan at Bike Rags and tell her you heard about them here. Just click on www.BikeRagsApparel.com or send an email to info at BikeRagsApparel.com to request a quote. Okay, now go grab a cup of delicious chain and spoke coffee and enjoy this conversation with Steve McGuire. So, Steve, first of all, um, hey, thanks. Sure. Like, this has been great. Yeah. Um, And B, tell me about this program. Saw your bike in McGrath. Right. You built it just for the race and you have the facilities in order to build your own bike for whatever, right? Yeah. So what's what's this program?
1: So uh, the bike you saw at McGrath. Uh, really emanates from this larger project teaching at the University of Iowa, students how to build bicycles by hand. So, uh, we have a bicycle curriculum, hand-built bicycle curriculum. Uh, Students do a full-scale drawing of a bicycle uh, that they design for a particular area that they want to ride, a particular kind of riding they want to do. And then uh, over the course of the semester, they learn the skills associated, for instance, TIG welding. And then they, uh, at the end of the semester, walk away with a hand-built frame uh, that they've had. I I think that, you know, I'm counting back, I think over 180 students have graduated from the university and walked away with a hand-built bike, which is probably uh, a kind of accomplishment, everyday accomplishment that uh, is accumulated, that I never really think about. But every once in a while I pause and I, I think of a given student. So I've got a student graduate school in Sydney, she's got her bike. We had a student that was our uh, road Scholar uh, uh, nomination, so she took her time trial bike that she made, she actually took third in the under 24 triathlon. She took it with her to Oxford. So, you know, I like to imagine that uh, these bicycles are with people uh, way past, you know, my lifetime. So, it's a cool thing.
0: That's a very cool thing.
1: How'd you get started? Where'd this idea come from? You know, um, like a lot of things, uh, coincidence and consequence. So. I, you know, I've ridden my bicycle all my life. I think the first long trip I took was in 1982 when I uh, had sold my car to my little brother uh, and went home to Kansas City. And I had 107 dollars. 105 of it went to a bike, and I took some food that I had in the refrigerator, and I headed south. And it was, uh, it was, uh, it was such an experience that. It set in motion, you know, a couple of tours down the west coast and a couple of tours back from Alaska. And the more I rode my bike, the more I wanted to make a bike for the kind of riding that I did. I began to, to work with Tom Teasdale, great frame builder. And uh, Tom became a great friend. Um, I learned how to build frames from Tom. Then, uh, In 2010, uh, we were in a position in the School of Art and Art History to uh, recast, reconfigure our curriculum and so I was trying to develop courses that had the potential to offer a variety of skills that were broadly applicable. Uh, up until that point, the art that I made, uh, you know, was related to the bike. It began, you know, I went to graduate school first in sculpture, so I made, you know, fabricated pieces. So, I knew how to fabricate, um, but in 2010, I realized, why not? Let's build bicycles. And so. Um, we began, the first semester I had 17 students, one frame jig and one welder. And uh, one of the great experiences was that I brought Tom Steele in as a teacher. And so for the first two semesters, Tom and I taught together. Then uh, I began to refine uh, the course in terms of how it was done. Uh, we got to a place where we had uh, 14 frame jigs so that every student could have a frame jig. Uh, I uh, developed my skill sets right along uh, side the students developing uh, their skills. I began to take students to the North American Handbuilt Bike Show where they were really successful. Uh, and then over the years I discovered that one of the, for me personally, one of the great things about teaching the class was all the investigation that students did on their own. So if I've got 12 students in a class, and they're doing research about bicycles, with the internet, they're, they're talking to people all over the globe about ideas. And they bring that to class, and then we try and execute stuff. So uh, this is about the best thing that, uh, that I do. And uh, it's definitely the funnest thing that I do. What's your job here? So I'm actually the director of the School of Art and Art History, which is uh, is a very different job than teaching this course. It's, uh, it's a job that allows me to think real purposefully about uh, university students' experience, both undergraduate and graduate. But, you know, as the director of the school, the other thing I can do is uh, Pursue those things in curriculum that I think are really fun and this is one of those. So we have a fabrication shop for bicycles. Uh, we call it the bike lab, the bike studio, and uh, we're well equipped to do any piece of fabrication. Uh, when we need to, we can do CNC work uh, to augment uh, the pieces. I have engineering students that actually go on to build components. And then some students actually go out into the industry. I I never would have thought this would be the case uh, post-graduation. I have uh, engineering and art students. And uh, the course counts towards both uh, engineering majors and art majors.
0: Um, Do you see, over the years that you've done this, is there one major that is more successful in creating a usable bike at the end of the day? The art majors or the engineering majors, or do they both kind of meet in the middle and it's like everybody ends up with?
1: You know, they're, they're, they're I mean, they, they bring different skill sets. The thing that I think is intriguing is, and of course this is, is not universal, but art students usually come in with a strong tool skill set. They know how to use tools, which is kind of surprising to people. Uh, Engineering students uh, obviously know how to model and to conceptualize uh, an overall project of building something. But for both students, uh, making something that requires a level of precision and balance uh, to translate a drawing from something into something that actually works is is uh, is a very new experience. Um, you know that the most of the students have never welded before, so they learn how to weld. The thing that that brings both of the, st- the groups of students together in terms of experience is the fact that they're uh, having to very purposefully uh, experiment with the skill set in order to accomplish a bike. So. If you're making a bike for yourself, you better believe that you're going to learn how to do the things that are taught in the course, otherwise you won't have a bike. And uh, so, you know, the idea is that you have something that is personally meaningful and you learn how to, to do stuff.
0: Super cool. So, you uh, you built the bike specifically for uh, this year's ITI, you did the 350 in McGrath. Um, talk me through the process. How did you decide what aspects of that bike would fit that trail and then work it into the design and, and then the actual build?
1: So this is a good question. So um, so yes, I, I built a bicycle uh, for uh, the Iditarod Trail Invitational 350 and uh, there were a number of elements of the bicycle that I uh, you know really thought purposefully about and in, I think I have seven iterations of this bike uh, before I arrived at this bike and the next bike will be a little bit different and uh, that so you know this is uh, it's it's interesting so about um, five years ago I made a bicycle for uh, the Arrowhead. 135 race. And building from previous experiences in fat bike races, uh, I knew that the bicycle, when it's navigating multiple tracks in the snow, has a tendency to shift very quickly. And so I needed something that tracked better. And um, I began to experiment with the length of a bike, the wheelbase, and I made uh, a bicycle that uh, had 26-inch chainstays rather than the 17-inch you know, chainstays, and the bike performed incredibly well. And uh, it looked kind of like a cargo bike, but it was shorter than a cargo bike, and so it was it was what's now called a midtail bike. The you know the 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 experiment was, uh, was accidental and developing it was, was a matter of coincidence. So I was preparing for Arrowhead, this is 2014, and I was on one bike frame that I made and I was on this cargo frame that I made. And uh, the snow was soft. I went out in the morning on one bike and went out in the afternoon on the cargo bike. And I was, I was stunned at how well the cargo bike performed in the same conditions as relative to the other one. I, I was worried about the weight penalty, but it really wasn't that much. I also just liked the way the bike felt. And at the end of the day, because I'm not fast, I'm just looking to have a good experience on the trail. And so I took that bike and it, did, it performed really well. Uh, from there, I just, I went back, I mean, I have bikes that are 26 inch chainstay, 25, 24, 22, 21, and I, you know, I began to experiment, and then, uh, then it was interesting, I, I made a bike that actually won as the best mountain bike at the International Handbuilt Bike Show, and it was a 25 inch chainstay bike. and. The conversation that I had with people in England about the bike uh, really drove home some of the the, the the lessons in teaching the course, and that is, when you build a bike out of experience for a specific purpose, it becomes very obvious. That the aesthetic of the bike almost emanates out of the purpose for the bike, if that makes sense. And so, all of a sudden, um, you know, I had this concrete experience that reinforced that what I was pursuing was a good idea. It was really funny too. I came back and everybody started emailing me uh, images of Salsa's new announcement for the Blackboro. And, you know, they looked alike and I just thought, this is really cool. And then, uh, JP Devery used the Blackboro uh, two years ago. And uh, he, He had that kind of same epiphany accidentally where he rode that bike in Idaho, the Blackboro. It wasn't his intended bike initially for uh, the Iditarod Trail uh, 1000 that year, Uh, but he was stunned to see how well it performed in the snow. Same things, I mean. uh, So I decided that what I would do is uh, continue to pursue this. Uh, I went with 25 and a half inch chain stays. I made the bike so that it could break apart and fit into a suitcase. And um, had to get to stand over just right, but be able to balance the, uh, the, the cubic inches that I would have in the, the, the main triangle to be able to put a frame bag that could hold things substantially. But the overall goal was to distribute uh, my weight. Um, so, this year I went with a bike that had 22-inch uh, stays and uh, what I realized is that, uh, especially when I was in soft snow, that I needed to be a little bit longer like the, the bike that I had made before. And so the bike that I'm going to build goes back to 25 and a half inch stays uh, with the idea that... Uh, in soft snow, I'm able to get on the bike easier, and then uh, I'll be able to pedal just a little bit more. A lot of this actually grew out of riding a single speed. So if I'm having to start in the snow in a gear that is relatively high, I don't want to fall over, and so I need I need a little bit more balance to start out, and the long wheelbase does that. So, um, you yeah. dropped the bottom bracket? I dropped the bottom bracket. So the bottom bracket is uh, 11.75 uh, inches. And again, it, it allows me to ride in between the wheels. And uh, that lower bottom bracket in combination with the longer wheelbase almost acts like uh, the keel on a canoe. So that it, it seems to track really well. I mean. You know, it, it's not a—it's—it doesn't—it's it not a magic bullet. It's not something that all of a sudden uh, you're incredibly faster. But it, it adds uh, a significant percentage increase in balance, so that things that you couldn't ride in on before, you can ride on. Very
0: cool. Less walking.
1: Less walking. So for you,
0: what's the draw of the Adirondack Trail?
1: You know, uh, I think that uh, the thing that's the draw is, uh, is the immensity of the landscape. That's one. The other is the challenge of uh, stepping off of, you know, I have this... You know, there's this quote, uh, nothing ever bridged the gap between the person who stayed and the person who went. Anybody that tells you that they're not afraid of going out in the Alaskan wilderness is not telling you the truth. Um, it is uh, incredibly, uh, it, it requires an incredible amount of t- intensity around preparation because you know that everything that you do out there. Uh, has the potential to either enhance the the ability to get through, or really diminish, uh, and potentially leave you in a very dangerous spot. And so it, you know, just being able to, just starting out is, is uh, is, is a kind of scary proposition. The other is, I learn things in doing uh, those kind of events, but especially this event that I, I can't learn any other way. I, you know, so for instance, yesterday was a very challenging day administratively. You know, things happen suddenly in a, in a, a department that has 800 students and 60 staff and faculty. Uh, and uh, in the middle of three very challenging uh, personnel issues, uh, I was left with the same, uh, in the same situation that I would be on the Iditarod Trail, and that is, just make the step forward, and where you get to something, make a decision. And so, just keep moving forward. And knowing that, uh, you know, similar to pushing my bike, I might have to push for a while, but I'll get to somewhere where I can start writing. Uh, we will get through this, and uh, you know that's one. The other is, I think that uh, you know as I've gotten older, uh, one of the greatest disciplines to have is uh, to um, not get stuck in your own head. Uh, you know the ability to. Uh, Acknowledge where you are and pivot and do something different. Uh, And and I think you get to that place by uh, taking yourself apart and putting yourself back together. And I think that on the Iditarod Trail, you take yourself apart and you put yourself back together minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. And... You step back from it and the person who began is not the person who finished. And it's because the trail forced you to take yourself apart and put yourself back together. And you're at a particular age, under a particular set of circumstances. The thing that's interesting to me is how addictive that experience is. I think that, you know, taking yourself apart and putting yourself back together on the Iditarod Trail, you know, I've never done heroin, but I suspect that this is a more powerful drug than heroin. I think that, uh, you know, I got done with the 350 and I thought to myself, 60 years old, I'm done, I don't need to do this again. This was a huge accomplishment. Uh, Returning 25 years after being on the Iditarod Trail, for the first time, uh, I'm done. It was excruciating. It was challenging. I, I did it, and uh, two weeks later, and every fiber in my body uh, seemed to just crave uh, the images in my head from the trail, and I I wanted to be back, and I. Um, You know, I want to go to Nome. And so I'm signed up to go to Nome on the northern route. And uh, it will take me maybe 30 days. But I'm going to go with my friend Judd, who I went with this year. And uh, we will take it uh, minute by minute, day by day. And we will uh, get to Nome. And I'm hoping that we get to Nome. But I really do believe that uh, the person who finishes will be very different than the person who finished the 350. You know, and everybody. You were on two and a half inch tires. You weren't on
0: twin rims or anything. No. So
1: they they started making a snowcat rim. And, you know, at the time, because there was no real internet, you know, people. I had to go to interlibrary loan. And you know, find information you know about anything that had been written about. I did a bike. I did a sport, and so I, I went and um, I did that, and then I uh, called All Weather Sports in uh, in Fairbanks, and then uh, 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 talked with Simon. I got uh, some of these new rims that he was making, Snowcat rims and not quite 50 millimeters. I uh, called a a few people on the phone who had done the event. I uh, did as much research as possible, built up the wheels, had a $450 bike. That's what I I had. I worked with a friend of mine, Kim Leffler, who um, we took the bike apart, uh, put new bearings in, uh, all greased with uh, uh, jet fighter uh, grease because of the potential cold. Uh, the the uh, Turbo Cat lights made me a light and they used a 1930s uh, cord because it was rubber. It was real rubber and it wouldn't be brittle in the cold. I called uh, a man in uh, Anchorage who outfitted uh, mushers. Uh, with lights and he modified the lighting system that, to- that, that um, TurboCat made so that I could operate on a three watt bulb and, um, you know, I, I went and I, my uh, wife said this year, she said, you know, I'm a little bit worried, you were a lot younger, you were stupid. And I said, at least I'm still stupid. Uh, but, you know, it was, a, it was a good experience. It cost a lot of money to do these things. And, um, you know, I went there, and um, I, I had never known Paul Black before, uh, but I met Paul Black in the middle of the night, the first night, his, I, we were ri- I was riding, and somebody's calling out, and uh, he, his batteries had died. And he didn't have any batteries till we got to the checkpoint. And so he stayed on my wheel until we got to the checkpoint. And, um, but I, you know, I finished in 51 hours. It was 170 miles uh, up until uh, the 350 this year. That was probably the hardest event I had ever done. Where'd you finish? Like, what was the route? It was, it was out and back, but not on the same out and back. So it, it uh, started it big at loop. Big Lake. Yeah, Lou. It started at Big Lake. It went up to Squintna Roadhouse and then came back down on the other side of the Yentna River to Yenta Station and then um, from there back to Big Lake.
0: Uh, you guys were like cutting edge. You guys were like writing the book yeah. of bikes that your students are building That's today. right,
1: yeah. We were writing, I mean we were making, uh, the first bikes that uh, that were really utilized for the winter, and you know, it, it, there's something to be said for making something that translates uh, the landscape or the place that you're going to ride. And you know, the first question I begin with with students in designing a bike is, where are you going to ride the bike, and how do you want to ride it there? And that's how we figure out what kind of bike they're going to make. Uh, what you know, what's the height of the bottom bracket? What's their standover need to be? That kind of thing.
0: Oh, super cool, man. Super cool. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Steve. He's quietly one of the most interesting and well traveled bike packers I know. And that program at the University of Iowa makes me want to go back for my master's in engineering. Uh, or maybe art. It's awesome that other schools are becoming interested in offering it. Be sure and check it out. Just Google University of Iowa Bike Building and check out the story. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can also connect with Steve directly on Facebook. Or just look for him and the rest of the back-of-the-pack riders at the back of Arrowhead, Tascobia, or any of the other major fat bike backpacking bikepacking adventure races. Now as a special treat, we're making the film A Thousand Miles to Nome available on YouTube, so you can watch it for free. It'll be available until the last person reaches Nome in this year's Iditarod Trail Invitational. So look for the Bike Talk with Dave channel on YouTube, pop some popcorn, and settle in for a great show. And if you want to catch a flick about a shorter race to McGrath, the 350-mile journey over the Alaska Range, queue up down the Kuskokwim on the same channel. Thank you for tuning in to Bike Talk with Dave. I'd welcome you to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, we'd love it if you would share this with your friends. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can look for Bike Talk with Dave at buymeacoffee.com or hit me up on Venmo at david-mabel. If you do, I'll send you a Bike Talk with Dave sticker. There's a link to Buy Me a Coffee in the show notes. And if you want a real piece of history, put in your order for an original, limited edition Bike Talk with Dave hat. Just shoot me 25 bucks on Venmo and I'll send you a hat. I'll be ordering from our friends at Bike Rags Apparel in mid-January, so get your order in soon. Check them out on the Bike Talk with Dave Facebook page or Instagram. Now I'm going to go brew another cup of chain and spoke coffee. I've got a bag of the gravel grind that I've been enjoying this month, bold and smooth. And it is available to any of you by ordering at chainandspoke.com. Now, before I go, I also need to thank BikeIowa.com for being the online host of Bike Talk with Dave. BikeIowa.com is your one-stop shop with an incredible event calendar, as well as news, information, and trails in Iowa and around the Midwest. New events are added every week. In fact, if you're an event director, get your event on the calendar. It's easy to do. Just create an account and log in, and then you can add and edit your information. It's an easy way to reach thousands of cyclists, and it will not cost you a dime. One of those races you might find on BikeIowa.com is the Driftless 100. It's on April 29 this year and starts and finishes in Elkader, Iowa on the beautiful Turkey River. It's a scenic gravel race through the wooded hills of northeast Iowa. You can ride either 160 or 30 miles. I'll be there with the Iowa Gravel Gang. You can register today at DriftlessGravel.com. And now I'm going to play a recording I made with Matt Faffsfinder, the director of the race, right
2: now. Um, my name is Matt Fafsfinder. Um, I am the director of the Driftless 100 in Elkader, Iowa. Uh, that gravel race uh, starts and ends in Cator, and it starts on uh, April 29th. Um, that's a Saturday. And we have a hundred, a 60, and a 30 30-ish, I think when I looked at it, it's probably a 35 mile route. Um, but it is 90 to 95 percent gravel for each of those. so there's not really much pavement. Um, and there's not really much level B, it's one of those where because of the time of year, we try and shy away from having too many level B roads because they get so muddy and uh, nobody really wants to replace their derailleur in April of the season. Um, that's just one of those things we try to avoid. What's the origin of the
0: race? What what does the dripless region mean? What is that? And uh, how did you guys come up with the race? How did you come up with the race?
2: So it was one of those where I've, since I've lived around here, um, most of my life, I see just how beautiful it is and that, um, it's one of those that it offers a lot of, uh, different, it's a different course and it's a different type of gravel than about anywhere because it's going to be different than the mountains because it's not sustained climbs. It's not the same type of, um, the same type of climbing It's not consistent in the climbing. And you get, but you don't get kind of the rollers either where you get, uh, where you can have momentum into them and where you can kind of see where you're going. You never really see where you're going out here. We really, this was a perfect opportunity for us to kind of showcase what the Driftless area is. uh, And for people who are active and who like to bike and who like to get out there. This was um this was one of those opportunities so this is not Iowa flat <laughs> no <laughs> this is um this is not Iowa flat, and it's uh it's one of those where you're either going up or you're going down like the kind of our motto with it is it's ten k up and it's ten k down for climbing, like you're gonna be going up for ten thousand and down for ten thousand and yeah, it's um. It's tough. And it's one of those that we get people from uh, all, all parts of the state and uh, Illinois, Minnesota, and they come in and they just they are surprised. Um, and, you know, we we display it like it is. It is hilly. You'll have a lot of climbing. But when you actually get out there and you see like your Garmin suddenly says 15 percent grade, it has some rollers. It has your big climbs. It has curvy descents. Um, that time of year, you'll have a little bit of peanut butter gravel. You'll have some chunky stuff where they try and fill in. Hopefully we don't have snow, but you know, that's, that's part of the adventure.
0: Uh, so remind me again of the, uh, the date, the distances, and where can
2: people find information? Yep. Uh, Driftless 100 is April 29th. Um, we have a 100, a 60, and a 30 mile race. Um, our website is driftlessgravel.com. Um, and we have a bike rig, bike rig registration going on right now. Um, and that is open till about a week before the race.
0: Awesome. Well, I uh, am looking forward to seeing you there and it really is a beautiful area. So driftlessgravel.com. It's, it's tough, but it's exciting and it's, it's beautiful. Thanks again for tuning in we've got lots of great episodes coming up, including Craig Dalton, host of the Gravel Ride podcast, Brandon Quirk, the CEO of USA Cycling, to talk about USA Cycling's new mountain bike center to open in Bentonville, Arkansas. We've also got Mark West, a mechanic for the Steve Tilford Foundation cyclocross team. And later this winter, we'll talk with Matt Phippen, director of the annual bike ride across Iowa, Ragbri, about the plans to celebrate the 50th edition of the iconic ride so be sure and subscribe so you don't miss a thing And we'll see you next week and i hope you continue to live the dream on two wheels